0: From Thomas Edison State University, this is Edison Soundstage.
1: Welcome to the President's studio on Edison Soundstage. Listen as Thomas Edison President Meredith Hancock discusses wide-ranging topics with expert guests in areas like women in leadership, diversity, and inclusion, planning for a 21st century workforce building a better capital city and everything in between from the perspective of a university president.
2: Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you for taking time. As as today we honor and reflect on the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I'd also like to thank Reverend Charles Boyer for joining us again this year and TESU's Office of Community and Government Affairs for planning today's program. In a letter to Robert Hooke in 1675, Isaac Newton proclaimed, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. I recently listened to UMBC's Freeman Habrowski reflect on his time as a university president and leader. If you've ever heard Dr. Habrowski speak, you know that he, like Reverend Boyer and so many other civil rights leaders can motivate you like nobody's business. Unfortunately, these dynamic leaders who share a time bound call to action with Dr. King who built their philosophies through the civil rights movement of the 1960s and who so effectively further Dr. King's preaching cannot be expected to lead us forever. It is up to us and our future generations to see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. That may sound intimidating and more than one individual can do, but shortly before he was murdered, Dr. King gave us, the common person, a challenge to do better. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. We're in the midst of an intense time in our nation and there is no better day to be great. Those who know me may be surprised that I'm not dressed in business attire. However, I purposely chose Thomas Edison's spirit wear for today as a reminder to each of our employees, students and alum of who we are. Stewardship of place is a critical part of the shared Thomas Edison and New Jersey State Library identities. Our commitment to community and individual empowerment is a part of our fabric and indeed a key source of our professional pride. But we all must strive to be even greater than our professional selves. I challenge every person joining us today to take a moment to stand on the shoulders of giants, to think about what you are doing and what you can do for others, to put that service in action and become one of the great ones. I look forward to hearing Reverend Boyer speak with us about the importance of Dr. King's legacy and our responsibility to each other and our democracy. I will now turn the virtual mic over to Marcella Maziarz, Vice President for Community and Government Relations to introduce our speaker. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Hancock, and good morning, everyone. I see that we have around 189 participants and more coming in as we're talking. Um, I think at the last count, we had 270 individuals that had um, RSVP to this event, which um, speaks to the Reverend, Um, I think that everybody liked your uh, speech from last time so we have definitely a lot of interest for this year. I am so glad to be here uh, at Thomas Edison State University. I've recently joined this fabulous team of professionals and uh, Dr. Hancock, you said it best, Uh, Thomas Edison really lives in that spirit of serving their community um, and follows in those footsteps that Martin Luther King Jr. left for us on that importance of looking at what inequities we see around us and being that voice to um, destroy those barriers, but in a peaceful way, in a way that really builds on our community. And I'm glad to be a Thomas Edison for that. So today I'm introducing um, Reverend Dr. Charles F. Boyer. He's the founder Director of Salvation and Social Justice. The Reverend Dr. Charles Franklin Boyer is a third generation African Methodist Episcopal preacher. He is the pastor of Bethel AME Church in Woodbury, New Jersey, and the founder of Salvation and Social Justice, a nonpartisan Black faith root organization that believes liberation should precede legislation and prophetic vision should precede public policy. Dr. Boyer is a leading faith voice in New Jersey for racial justice issues, the campaign to abolish the drug war and the criminalization of Black people, His advocacy has led to the statewide adoption of racial impact analysis for sentencing, closure of youth prisons, voting rights restoration for people on probation and parole, the independent prosecutor law, and restricting solitary confinement. He led the campaign to free thousands of incarcerated people from New Jersey's deadly prisons due to the coronavirus, making it the largest singular decarceration event in the state's history. Reverend Boyer works closely with Black with the Black Legislative Caucus and is a co-convener of the United Black Agenda and the New Jersey Black Multi-Faith Alliance. He has been recognized as one of New Jersey's 25 most influential African Americans by the South Jersey Journal, a game changer by the NAACP, a torchbearer by the ACLU, a movement maker by New Jersey Working Families, and a community servant by New Jersey Citizen Action. He has been recognized by the New Jersey Work Environment Council and received the Making Democracy Work Award by the League of Women Voters. He was named number four on the 25 people to watch in 2019 by New Jersey Advanced Media for his work around police accountability and is a 2020 Jefferson Award recipient. I will now turn it over to Reverend Boyer who will talk to us today about health equity, DEI issues, the pandemic's pandemics effect on Trenton residents and MLK's mission as it relates to the Trenton community. Welcome Reverend.
0: I thank you so much, Marcella, thank you. It is a a privilege to be back with uh, Thomas Edison again. Uh, Thank you uh, to to Angela, uh, the president, the board, faculty and staff of Thomas Edison uh, truly grateful to be with you all and the beloved community, which has gathered uh, here today. Um, I, I have one, uh, my, well, one, I guess it's minor and major uh, update to, to, to that bio. Since the last time we were all together, I was appointed in June as the pastor of Greater Mount Zion, African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is right up the street from Thomas Edison State College. And so it is uh, a state university. It is a, a major blessing uh, to be in the city of Trenton. Uh, and uh, the, bishop, <laughs> the bishop sent uh, my wife and I there basically saying, you all are in Trenton all the time anyway, Uh, you might as well pastor and serve there as well. So we praise God for the opportunity to serve this this great community. Uh, I I don't plan to be before you long. I want to to deal with the subject matter at hand and really give uh, opportunity. Uh, I, I like to give as much opportunity as possible to to like the Q and A section of, of this program is always very, um, uh, very rich. But one thing that that I would like for us to, to take a moment of uh, of reflection, and I really felt this yesterday, both uh, in in several discussions that I had uh, with. Uh, various communities about the Dr. King holiday, and also what I observed about the current moment we're in and where we have been, is, is the reality that we celebrate this great man, this major prophet, who was very much hated and despised while he was alive someone who was a major critic of the state of things. Uh, And although he was celebrated for his groundbreaking work, many in the church and many who protected the status quo really hated Dr. King when he was alive because of his fierce in-depth, analysis and critique about the reality of the American situation as it pertains to Black people, but even more so to poor and powerless people. I should say people without power as we realize it in America. And as we look at the current day situation, we see that here in America where worship for the rich is really a religion, America is quickly becoming only two classes, the rich and the poor, right? The rich and the upper middle class are getting richer. You've all heard it before. If we was in church, you could complete the sentence, right? The rich are getting richer, and the poor and lower middle class are getting poorer. And when you look at the landscape in much of America, especially especially on the East and West Coast, right? You you can go to any beautiful neighborhood with McMansions and four car garages, or even colonial homes with two car garages and Beautiful cars, Mercedes Benz and BMWs and Volvos in the driveway and people jogging down beautiful landscape streets, waving to the friendly neighborhood police officer, tall trees and rose bushes and begonias and hyacinths line the sidewalks. There's the friendly neighborhood Starbucks, right? And the quaint uh, coffee shops and brunch spots and uh, bookstores and eateries. But if you begin to travel a little bit south, a little bit east, a little bit west, a little bit north, if you cross the train tracks, or if you go down the hill a little bit, the trees turn to concrete, the rose bushes, begonias and hyacinths turn to soda cans, old garbage and candy wrappers, the coffee shops, and bookstores turn to bodegas and corner stores and dollar generals and liquor stores and people jogging waving to the police turn to people weaving from police, running from police and the McMansions and Colonials turn to projects and low-income housing. Wealthy to welfare is usually within walking distance of each other. Healthy lives right next door to hurting people Great funded education and apartheid level under-resourced schools are separated by one digit in the zip code. Opportunity is typically a stone's throw away from oppression. Comfort is a hop, skip and jump away from captivity. Sisters and brothers, no place in America demonstrates that vast disparity and irony than New Jersey. You can look at the Livingstons, right? Near the Irvingtons and the Watchungs and Westfields, near the Plainfields and Elizabeths, the Cherry Hills and the Camdens. And of course, Princeton and Trenton. We find ourselves in a New Jersey that still has major issues along race and zip code. New Jersey's unconstitutionally segregated schools. The black maternal health crisis in New Jersey. A black mother is seven times more likely to die giving birth in New Jersey. New Jersey has spent $11 billion on the drug war while only a fraction of that kind of investment goes to health approaches. 12 times more likely to be incarcerated in New Jersey as a black person than a white person. The legislature has recently passed a bill allowing police to view body cam footage before writing their reports. We are one of the most wealthy states, but we have the largest racial wealth gap in the nation. We have more polluted Superfund sites on the federal list than any other state in the nation. Most of these sites in poor communities with no plan in place to clean up the contamination. Counties and towns across the state have concentrated poverty, people of color in poor under-resourced neighborhoods because wealthy areas have fought affordable housing. Here's what King wrote in Chaos and Community. Where do we go from here? He says, quote, so far we have had constitutional backing for most of our demands for change. And this has made our work easier, since we could be sure of legal support from the federal courts. Now we are approaching areas where the voice of the Constitution is not clear. We have left the realm of constitutional rights and we are entering the area of human rights. The Constitution assured the right to vote, but there is no such assurance of the right to adequate housing, or the right to adequate income, or the right to high quality education and healthcare. And yet, in a nation that has a huge gross national product—billions, trill—and now in our time, trillions of dollars a year—he goes, he goes on to say, it is morally right to insist that every person have a decent home, a decent education, and enough money to provide the basic needs for one's family. And this is where King began to advocate for universal basic income, realizing that the basic necessities of life are far more sacred than whatever we deem sacred, even in the United States Constitution. And if I could take just a little bit of time today to focus on how health equity has played itself out, especially given that we find ourselves together again, still in a pandemic. This has been a very hard two years for me personally. It's been a year, uh, two years where my mental health and my spirit and my faith has been challenged in unprecedented ways. I've buried more people in the two years of this pandemic than I have in my previous 10 years of pastoral ministry. Black New Jerseyans have suffered disproportionately during this pandemic, especially in the earliest parts of the pandemic. Through most of this time, Black New Jerseyans were more likely to be hospitalized and die. In 2020, COVID was the leading cause of death amongst Black people in New Jersey. What the pandemic has done, it has magnified decades of systemic racism through our health care system. These systemic structures rob Black citizens and residents of life every day through segregated poverty. Things like uh, lack of access to nutritious food, exposing individuals to stress and trauma that other people just don't have to deal with by eliminating access to preventative health care and limiting financial resources to secure those basic essentials. New Jersey creates a permanent underclass which finds very few rungs on the ladder to be able to pull itself up. New Jersey state constitution's preamble promises that persons are insured among their rights, enjoying and defending life and liberty. The ability to enjoy life is the most essential human right. This, too, is a constitutional guarantee at both the state and the federal level. promises each person has the right to enjoy life. And the question we have to ask then is how do we actually actualize that? Trenton is the perfect example of how poverty, even prior to the pandemic, created devastation for the most vulnerable. Trenton is a work, food, and birthing desert. Trenton is a city where several Black neighborhoods were decimated by state and city level projects and policies made largely to benefit white New Jerseyans most of whom don't live in the city. One example of this is the decimation of tax dollars the city would have had if state government was not the major employer and landowner in the city. The The building of highways, so mostly white New Jerseyans could commute into State Street and then leave. Even though the promise of state jobs were to the black people who lived in the city, but that was never actually uh, realized. The failure of state government to put dollars into the city, knowing that this circumstance would cause financial decimation, not to mention the impact of the drug war, the removal of maternity wards. Our great assemblywoman, Verlina Reynolds Jackson, she always says, You can die in Trenton, but you can't be born in Trenton. The racial targeting and dismantling of the city for the profit of prisons. As I reflect on all of this, sisters and brothers, as an AME clergyman, African Methodist Episcopal Church, a church which was born through social protest, We look to build our own power and equity and autonomy within our religious structure, our own ability to create space where we would not be oppressed by others. The black church as imperfect as it is, at least it is for us by us, at least it is a place where those other forces have limited power. I believe King would call on the church to step up. And so some of the things that we're looking at as a church now that I'm spending time not only on State Street in Trenton, but now on Pennington Avenue and Martin Luther King Boulevard in Trenton. Some of the things that we as a church and also through Salvation and Social Justice is exploring are health-based community-led and imagined alternatives for first response for mental health issues and substance use issues. What, what, what would it look like for us as a church, as an organization to have programming for youth, which are restorative justice alternatives rather than pushing our young people to youth prisons? How do we become more involved in violence interruption and seeing gun violence, Trenton now one of the most dangerous cities in the nation when it comes to gun violence? What would it look like for us as a faith entity to be involved in violence interruption? And what would it look like for us to utilize our space, our facility, our know-how, and our army of trusted messengers and mothers as a space for maternal health, prenatal care, and potentially a birthing center. My challenge to all of us today here, sisters and brothers, and I start with myself and my context as an example, is that we all need to honor King by re-examining, redefining, and taking a second look at beloved community, as one where we all take responsibility in deeper ways for what is happening around us, where we define accountability, where we use restorative justice solutions instead of punitive measures, where health approaches become the first tool in our toolbox rather than criminal justice approaches where we develop wealth and access to capital for those who have been marginalized and left out of these conversations, where we take care of our own. We all churches, community members, and educational institutions must redefine and reimagine our health system. Looking at gun violence as public health and trauma related, free preventive care in a culture of health. Market-based healthcare, sisters and brothers, is a tool for the rich and powerful to segregate healthcare. It's just another form of being left out for everyone else. Healthcare is a human right. And most of us I'm sure would lift up uh, the Affordable Care Act, and while the Affordable Care Act initially reduced the federal numbers of those uninsured in the millions, we retain a system that is only partially socialized. And as a result, health care in the United States and in New Jersey is not measured only by access. It should not be measured only by access to any health insurance, but also should be measured in the quality access and delivery of medical care. Every human being, regardless of socioeconomic status, should receive quality healthcare. When the pandemic hit and those vast disparities were put on display, where we saw that our very survival was dependent upon service workers, who had to put their health on the line in order to make the rest of us more comfortable, we were able to clearly see how healthcare had contributed to the commodification of people's bodies. Quality healthcare is a human right. In universal equitable coverage, should be the goal, which would include addiction recovery, mental health treatment, and wellness. We should all demand access to equal care in New Jersey's communities, particularly communities like Trenton. Those who want to honor King should call for the transformation of a health care system that is no longer understood as a market, but instead a temple for collective humanity. It must refute the idea that bodies are commodities or that any one body is worth more than another or that healthcare should be delivered according to race, privilege, or wealth. We should refute the idea that these systems are too large to change and instead demand the delivery of the beloved community. I leave with this for Thomas Edison. a Couple of things to meditate on what Thomas Edison as an educational institution can do. One is the research necessary to help support and be a part of advocacy efforts, which help eliminate the disparities which have come down so hard and shown so bright in the midst of this pandemic, particularly for the residents of Trenton. Also, I challenged the college to develop non-traditional strategic partnerships with the faith community, with on the ground community level organizations and people who may not have all of the institutional bona fides but have the street level bona fides necessary to reach the most impacted. And lastly, as an educational institution, you have the unique ability to teach the truth about the history and legacy and continuing impact of systemic racism upon the most marginalized in the city of Trenton. I thank you all for this time and I look forward to, uh, to talking with you all. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. and Reverend Boyer for that. Uh, Amazing, amazing uh, recap of what we've seen of that, um, the magnifying glass that has been applied to our health inequities, um, which, as you say, healthcare is a right, it's a human right. And when we have, we see injustice and inequities in health, um, those are the worst injustices. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, talked about that um, injustice in healthcare is one of the cruelest forms of um, injustice that you could uh, put on a society. Um, I think that Angela or Thomas will come on to um, do a QA. and a
1: Yes, thank you so much, Marcela. Uh, Thank you, Reverend Boyer for those powerful words My name is TJ Brandon. I am the Human Resources Project Specialist at Thomas Edison State University and I'm also a member of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council here between Thomas Edison State University and the New Jersey State Library. And just for a quick second, our mission as the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council is to really act as a safe space to generate dialogue, and engagement regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion among the members of Thomas Edison State University and the New Jersey State Library. And on behalf of the council, we are so excited to be part of this. And um, I hope we we can create dialogue and engagement through this question and answer session. So that being said, I am taking a look at the question and answer portion of Zoom. So if you have any questions for Reverend Boyer, please add them to the Q&A and we will, we will ask them for you. And until we get one of those, we do have some questions lined up already. So we Reverend Boyer, you talked about this a lot, giving us a little bit of challenge. But our first question on the list is, if you could um, please give us some direct ways, diversity, equity, inclusion issues can be addressed in the Trenton community and how an institution of higher education can assist on making a difference. And I know you did touch a little bit on these challenges, but if there are any more direct ways or any more that you have to challenge us with, we'd love to hear them.
0: For sure. I um, I, I think the best way for me to um, uh, to, to unpack, unpack this space a little bit more is to talk about um, our theory of change, the salvation of social justice and how it may be applicable. Uh, Our our theory of change is is rooted in what took place uh, historically from the context of black faith. So um, people who were discriminated against in uh, mostly white institutions, Took it upon themselves to reimagine and develop institutions of their own and then led, you know, imagine, led, and created something new. And so we we take from that uh, a process in which we work within communities uh, and, and also deep and dive, you know, using sacred language, moving from lament to liberation and where we value, and and I would like to think about diversity, equity, and and inclusion as more than than just color here, but also about class, what I think is important to understand in regards to class, because even myself, I'm often called in to, to offer a black perspective uh, but at this point, I also bring a, a, some, some privilege to the table, right? I bring privilege to the table. There's also a decent amount of work, which I won't get into, right? There's, there, there's privilege that a Black male faith leader brings to the table, largely because of figures like Dr. King, where so many women and ground level people that did so much of the work have been left out of the conversation. And so it's critically important that institutions that have power and influence like Thomas Edison work diligently to make sure the voices of people directly impacted by particular issues are part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion mix. And understanding that going through, living through poverty and health inequity makes those people even more qualified to talk about it than someone who has studied it from a book and earned a degree about it. So my my point is I I, I challenge uh, Thomas Edison to really do the deep dive work to, And you can work with kind of grassroots community groups to identify those kinds of folks to help get out there and bring those folks to the
1: conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Reverend Boyer. I'm sure we will will take those challenges and start working towards exactly that. We do have some registrant questions. Um, I'll start with the first one on the top. How do we as a higher education institution train our nurses to be aware of the biases and inequity within the healthcare system, i.e. the pain of labor for a Black woman versus white woman?
0: Uh, have more, more black women be nerd, be, be in those spaces, right? So, you know, it really comes down to, you know, really touching on, on, on the last piece, the best folks, it's, it's not very easy to train experience, but empathy and, um, empathy and understanding really comes when I see you as my own and I connect with your experience. And so one of the reasons why I keep harping on this kind of creating our own, more and more spaces need to be made where the people who serve people are reflective of the very space that they come from. Now, with all that being said, that um, that, that, that certainly also must mean kind of recruitment from a, from a class aspect as well, because we still see that there sometimes can be um, bias, even from Black people towards Black people or in or same group bias in some ways. But for the most part, uh, particularly in, in the medical area and the research that I've studied, uh, for instance, particularly around uh, doctors of color, Tend to be far better equipped uh, to deal with people equitably, regardless of race, than, than, uh, than white doctors. And there's some, and it doesn't mean that the bias never creeps in, but it's less likely to creep in amongst folks who've who've experienced the same types of things. So I think the major critical piece uh, is, 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 is recruitment, and to some level, uh, as as much as able uh, preference um, in order to build up that pool. But then also the ones in, in for, for, uh, for people who need to learn it, it is best that they learn from directly impacted people if they're not directly impacted themselves.
3: And if I could add, um, there's a lot of work on implicit bias that has been started um, in particular in the Department of Health, as we're looking at um, the New Jersey maternal healthcare crisis. You definitely touched upon that. You talked about Trenton being a, a birthing desert. We lost um, in Trenton our, our the, the hospital that could do deliveries. These were uh, decisions that were taken years ago by a different administration that allowed for the only birthing center to move to the suburbs. Uh, there is actually in Mercer County, uh, no place to have, uh, to, to deliver. Uh, you have to go to, well, the only one for Hopewell, there's only one. Um, you have a population in Trenton that continues to grow and they must uh, go to Hopewell in order to deliver their babies or to Plainsboro in Middlesex County. Um, I think that also having those implicit bias courses and that awareness is part of everything that you build. That you always understand that there are inequities just because of class, just because of the way that you look. I've lived them personally in the state of New Jersey when I delivered my, my children. Um, 11 years ago, I delivered a baby that was 10 pounds, two ounces. Um, I had a fracture after delivering that baby. Uh, when I saw the physicians and they're looking at the uh, x rays and the MRIs, they're saying, Well, this does say there's a fracture, but you know, that's really not common. We don't believe you. And that's exactly what fuels me, right? And you say that people of color that have. Um, live those experiences, it's powerful for you to share them and for you to understand that you could do that, right, by standing on the shoulders of giants to just personally fight against those inequities and and, and that, um, what you face every day. Go ahead, Thomas. I know we have a lot of questions.
1: (laughs) Yes, we do. Thank you so much to the both of you for, for answering that. Our next question are, what steps can be taken at the policy level by healthcare leaders, such as health plans, hospital systems, providers, to communicate to communities of color that they understand the barriers they face when it comes to equitable healthcare?
0: So I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll take I'll take a stab at it. If I understand the the, the question correctly, it sounds like it's what can healthcare entities do uh, in regards to internal policies to show communities of color that they're taking their lived experience um, seriously. If if, if 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 that's if that's the question. Um, you know, one is, is, is showing up and, be, and, and being present and, and listening, right? And so I would really encourage health uh, entities just like every other entity and institution to make space. You know, we often in the institutional space have all these various uh, advisory boards and, and make space for, for people to have some level of weight and influence. And uh, in in order to inform the work and the policies of the institution, well, wherever the the institution is, wherever that health entity is or the people that they serve, um, one, value the opinions of the people directly. And don't just do that by having a couple of listening sessions. You know, make it a strong part of the institutional framework, and that also requires investment. Right. So even in our work as a as a public policy organization, we resource people when they come to the table. Right. Because when you're dealing with poverty, you don't have time to go and help pretty well off people just to become better off in their work. Right. Because you are trying to figure out how you're going to eat and survive and keep the lights on. And so that must be part of the understanding of how institutes to, so if you want to show folks that you're taking them seriously, value their opinion and value meaning be willing to invest in that opinion and have those various opinions at the table in a resourced way.
1: Thank you, thank you for your insight on that. Sure, next one we talk about Can you talk a little about fair and equitable school funding? I'm a parent of an elementary school student in a traditionally underfunded school district. As a parent, what can I do to ensure my child receives the same services and education that students in better funded schools can offer?
0: Uh, That's the million dollar question. (laughs) That's the million dollar question and um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fail your question miserably in that if I knew the answer to that, then I don't think we would have the issue in New Jersey that we have, because I believe, well, let me say a couple of things. One, the very fact that you're raising it and you have the passion to advocate is like 90% of the battle of, of what you uh, as an individual can achieve in the current system as, as we see it. Um, As you may or may not know right now, there's a lawsuit against the state of New Jersey for operating unconstitutionally segregated schools uh, of which I'm a part. The fact that New Jersey enforces zip code barriers, for instance, I grew up in Plainfield, New Jersey. I grew up in Plainfield. And now that's that's almost walking distance from Westfield. And it it literally is walking distance from Scotch Plains. These are some of the best schools in the country: Westfield and Scotch Plains. Plainfield is not. Uh, my parents uh, and and I'm also in, and Plainfield is also in walking distance, so that's Union County, but we're also on the border of Middlesex County. We're on the border of Piscataway High School, again one of the one of the great schools. Uh, I was illegally sent. My parents broke the law, and sent me to Piscataway High School that education was tremendous. Uh, I, I would like to think that I'm a, 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 a smart guy, but I, I don't really think that I am that smart. Had, had, had it not been for my parents breaking the law, I don't know that I'd even be where I am today. And so, so we have a system in which the state enforces uh, something that goes against its own constitution. One, continue to advocate, show up to the school board meetings, all of those pieces, but I would also encourage you to talk to your state representatives and tell them that New Jersey needs to abolish the zip code barriers, which which keep you from being able to actually access the better resource schools, which are probably within walking distance or if you're able, you 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 could probably, if you have the passion to do that, that means you'd probably be willing to drive your child to the next, to the closest school district that has those resources. And I and I'm not the most conservative or market-based person in the world. Uh, and I and this issue is so majorly complicated. So I don't want to oversimplify it's super complicated as we have some of the hardest working teachers and educators within our in, within some of the most under-resourced schools and having to be not only educators, but mental health experts and all kinds of things. And so this is a very complicated issue. But I do think that for uh, the, the best situation f- uh, for our children, that there may need to begin to be, uh, Uh, schools which begin to compete for uh, cultural competency, for resources, all these different things in order to make a a better situation. But I I, I encourage you to do some research about the lawsuit and to follow. Um, I also encourage you to stay informed in the work that we're doing around this issue because it will be unfolding over the coming years. Uh, as so much needs to be unpacked when it comes to school resources. Um, so please, um, you, you, you can get on our email list by um, going to uh, our website, sandsj.org, sandsj.org. I encourage you to sign up for the, for the email list to stay for them.
1: Amazing, thank you, uh, Reverend Boyer for that. It is a lot to unpack and it's very complicated, like you said. Moving on to our next question. The Build Back Better bill has unfortunately stalled in Congress and its benefits to underrepresented communities may never see the light of day. How can we work together to help move such important benefits forward either now or in the future?
0: Wow, you all of You're not holding back on the complicated questions today. This is a really strong, strong crowd. I'm glad we made a little bit more time. Well, um, you know, one, again, I'm I'm an advocate. I'm a policy advocate. Um, so um I'm always going to tell you my default answer is always gonna be continue to work with your representatives. I would suspect depending on where you're from or if you're in Mercer County or what part of the state, I would suspect you even asking that question, you probably or you may have representatives that are that are that don't need convincing about the Build Back Better uh, bill. Uh, But with with all that being said. I think some all of those specific pieces, whether it be childcare and these different things, we also, I think, should see some of the things that the Build Back Better bill is working towards are some of the things the current administration has worked very diligently to put in place in New Jersey already. The things like childcare and some of the pieces that have been working uh, uh, working forward around uh, college expenses uh, and, and and some of the like. So I think one really understanding those particular dynamics and what some of the pieces that are already taking place uh, here in New Jersey. I think to some degree we're, we're ahead of the curve, but also I would also link some of this back to the recovery dollars, which um, you know every township or county to some degree has some of those dollars. And we have to be involved in advocating for how those dollars are actually spent in the meantime, while we wait for some of the Build Back Better uh, pieces, hopefully to, 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 to come in place at some point.
1: Thank you, Reverend Boyer, for hitting that, that difficult question. So our next one is with increasing reliance on algorithms and automated scoring systems across multiple services and platforms especially with the introduction to a blockchain economy how do you see race and class changing in america
0: (laughs) wow so i you know i'm not even sure that i'm going to answer the question correctly i'm not sure i fully I mean, I, I think I may understand certain portions of it, so I don't want to, um, so please forgive me. Um, there's, there's a lot of research going on now around how algorithms um, and, and various pieces, whether in social media, whether in tons of, 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 of different entities, uh, actually, have racial bias in and of themselves because the ones who program the algorithms typically that racial bias plays its plays its way uh, into how how al- algorithms. I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a perfect example for for a while there. I think it's getting a little better, but uh, at, as a black person, when you used to go into the bathrooms and you put your hand underneath the infrared sensor trying to trying to get the water to work it. It, it always it always was, was a little rough. Things like facial recognition, all these different pieces are just an example of how things have had to be fine-tuned over time and having to make sure that there's a strong representation of the human family in the room when algorithms and all these pieces are being developed in order to correct for bias. So one, I just want to lift up uh, that, uh, when it comes to the technological space that that technology as much as it advances us at the same time can continue or even make worse in many ways different pieces uh, of different things which have it, it kind of adds to a structurally racist system. One of the best uh, examples I can give of that as well were some of the algorithms which were developed in regards to bail reform uh, and, and some of those pieces would we would see through the algorithms put in place would sometimes allow uh, a white person to be let out for a more serious crime than a black person, alleged crime, I should say, than a black person because it would take things like socioeconomic status, address and things like that, uh, things that that were more along racial lines into play more so than, than 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 anything else. So I think we have to kind of correct, use things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, representation in spaces, and development of algorithms. And also, I think just lastly, there's something to be said that there is an emerging people of color. Uh, kind of tech advocacy space. So I also think at the same time to be, understand the hope and the beauty and the fact that a lot of these things, even when we're talking about kind of democratic spaces are being used to help towards the process of liberation and equity.
1: Thank you, Reverend Boyer, very insightful. Unfortunately, due to time, we are going to ask one more question and I will hand it over to Angela after that. But What can we do as employees to carry out Dr. King's legacy in the workplace, in our communities and neighborhood communities such as Trenton? A little culmination of some things we've asked, but I think it's a good thing to end on.
3: And I want to, uh, Thomas, thank you for that. Can I add to that, Reverend uh, uh, Pastor Daryl Armstrong is on our attendees list and he wants me to give you a shout out um, and congratulate you for this fabulous event. Um also thinking of, as we're talking about, how can the workers in our institution uh, the, are, uh, extend what Martin Luther King jr. and work on that within our community. Um, we also see that many institutions of higher education um, are studying their own institutional history um, and their relationships to racism um and i think it's important for us to think about that as well as when we're celebrating martin luther king jr.
0: yeah absolutely and always my great great friend uh, dr darrell armstrong uh, just a, a great advocate great man of god thank you so much and it's it's definitely a privilege to be uh, to be side by side with him here in trenton and yes i would there there there's a couple of pieces one uh, I'm, I'm always one who encourages people to be advocates and regard in whatever room, whatever space you're in, in an, institu- in, in an institution that has power and resources, whatever that looks like. The question should always be who's not in this room or in this conversation that should be. Far too often, we make decisions and we make plans about people without hearing from people. So that's that's one and two uh, is 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 the very point, uh, Marcella, that 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 you just uh, brought up, is also advocating and looking at the history of our particular institutions and the harms that they have done. Dr. King was very clear that healing—that we could not move forward as beloved community without repair, remorse, and and and. And, and ultimately reparations, right? And I know that that's a trigger word, but at the end of the day, every single one of our institutions, every single one, I, I take, I take the, the Christian institution into this has done damage to people, right? Some of our, all of our institutions have done damage to people at some level. And if we are ever to move beyond that damage, we have to lift up the history, we have to teach the history, we have to be real about it and we have to seek to be intentional about the repair. And I really believe that, uh, that, that, that Thomas Edison in particular has a very unique ability and opportunity to make massive change in Trenton. And one of the reasons, I'll leave you with this, uh, I went back to school as an adult learner, a non-traditional, Like, yeah, I got out of Piscataway High School, but I didn't go straight to college. I did everything, but what I was supposed to do, at least what what, what I was supposed to do. But when I look back, I'm happy that I came back as a non-traditional learner because I was better able, I was better situated to receive knowledge. Thomas Edison, one of the strengths of Thomas Edison is its ability in your constituency Folks are better situated to receive knowledge in many ways. a lot, many people may already be out in the workforce already influencing space. And you have the ability to help those folks make change right now. And so I would say you have the ability to bring folks at the table and you have the ability to do the same to make, build and strengthen advocates right where they are right now. So again, thank you so much. Um, and it's always a privilege to be with you all.
3: Thank you so much Reverend Boyer. Hi everyone, I'm Angela Chapman, the Acting External Affairs Manager for Community and Government Affairs here at Thomas Edison State University. I'm also a proud member of the DI Council and excited about our work to create a more diverse, inclusive and equitable university environment. We would like to thank Reverend Boyer for this time today and profound comments on Dr. Kim's ongoing mission and how we can make a difference with today's climate and challenges that can bring our communities together. Reverend Boyer, your words today were invaluable and thought provoking. We thank you for your time. And on behalf of the university, we have a special gift of appreciation that should reach you shortly. Thank you everyone for participating and I really hope you enjoy your day. Thank you so much, everyone.